Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Becky Feldman. I hear Diego take a stool and pull it up to sit at my Yoni because it's his workspace now. That and more. But before that, over at thestorystudio.org, we have a level one two-day online group storytelling workshop with David Crabb happening on March 22nd and March 24th from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Get on over to thestorystudio.org. We've also got lots of corporate workshops starting to happen again. We've worked with clients like Citibank, Google, Pfizer, and American Express. The one thing that we hear over and over and over again from our corporate clients is that they've taken communication sorts of workshops before, but the Story Studio gave them nuts and bolts, gave them tangible takeaways, made them feel like, ah, I've got the practical steps now for telling a great story. We've had corporate clients tell us that they were able to land big gigs, big new contracts because of these workshops that were worth millions of dollars. So you can find all of that at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Coco Steel and Love Bomb behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Remedies, three stories about people finding little ways to work it out. Hey, listen, you do not want to miss out on the next Risk live stream. We're only doing these once a month now. So you got to make a point of being there. The next one is Friday, March 12th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Sarah Adelman. She is a Risk listener who sent in an anecdote. If you go to Risk's YouTube page, at Risk Show, you'll see I made a little video called Send Us Your Three to Four Minute Long Anecdotes. Everything you need to know is right there in that little video, so go check it out. Before we hear from Sarah, we're going to hear from Becky Feldman. This goes back to when we were still doing live shows on stage in Los Angeles. Becky can be found on Instagram at Beckles212, and here she is now with a story we call Tight.
it was a Friday night a few years back, and I was at home sitting at my computer, and I look at the time, and it was midnight. And I realized that I had spent the entire evening rereading and re-editing every single negative Yelp review I ever left. And I thought to myself, wow, I really need to be having sex. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but sex has always been very complicated for me. Um, when I was around 14 years old, I developed this condition called vaginismus. And it's basically the involuntary spasms of the muscles in your pelvic floor that can make any type of penetration very painful. So that meant when I got older and started to have sexual intercourse, that was just beyond painful for me. And it was also very emotionally distressing. And it got to the point where I couldn't even have an orgasm with another person, I could only do it alone. So in my early 20s, I just swore off having sex and being in a relationship and sadly resigned myself to being a lonely and frigid woman. But cut to eight years later, I have this Yelp-inspired realization, and I find a sex therapist via Yelp, um, who, then, <laughs> who then connected me to someone named Diego, who is a sexological body worker. So sexological body work is an accredited profession, and it's a spiritual practice that involves breath work and Reiki, but a major component of it is erotic massage. Um, so Diego works out of his home in Mar Vista. Um, <laughs> and he kind of, he looks like an older, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he just like exemplifies the qualities of a spiritual person. Um, he wears flowy clothes. He has a ponytail. Um, <laughs> He uh, refers to vaginas as yonis, which is a Sanskrit word for vagina. And um, he, also <laughs> he also personifies them. So he calls them she and her. And um, his home studio like, looks like this temple, you know, with like bamboo shades and a giant gong next to the massage table. So when I first walk in, the session starts off with like a discussion on his couch. And so like, I'm an adorably neurotic person. And I was just like so nervous because I'm thinking like, okay, like what, what is going to happen here? But for some reason, like, I don't know if it was like Diego's kind of like peaceful energy that he was putting out, but I just felt like very comfortable telling him all about my sexual dysfunction, and he was very understanding and told me that he's had clients like me before. Um, and then he starts getting into like his spiritual philosophy about sex, and as he's sitting there just like very comfortably in a lotus position, he says that we're all sexual energy. We all come from sexual energy. We all started as orgasms. And he says, Becky, think about it. You're here because your parents, at least your dad, <laughs> had an orgasm. <laughs> and I was like, listen, Diego. <laughs> 
I really don't want to think about my dad having an orgasm. Um, so then we move on to like the actual like healing portion of the session. Um, I get completely undressed, I get on the massage table, I'm face down, I'm underneath a silk blanket, and it starts off as a regular massage. But for the erotic portion, um, I give Diego my permission to take the blanket off. But for Diego, taking a blanket off isn't just whipping a blanket off. It is a ritual. So he takes a mallet, and with all of his like tantric, sexual, like masculine might, just pounds it on the gong so hard. And the sound is so loud, I swear to God, the entire room was shaking. I mean, the Tibetan healing bowls on his shelves were just like rattling back and forth like a 4.0 earthquake. And there is no doubt in my mind his neighbors could hear like this insanely loud gong. And I just picture them being on their porch being like, hey, Diego's uh, doing the blanket thing now. And I am just like nervously laughing as Diego is like slowly pulling the blanket off little by little. And then uh, he proceeds to do some light sensual touching. Um, He takes a feather tickler and lightly brushes it over my body. He does the same thing with fur massage mitts. And I suddenly find myself like coming alive thinking like, wow, this is feeling pretty good right now. And then he does other things like massage my scalp and pull my hair. And I was just like, well, I guess that is a thing I like now. (laughs) Um, And then uh, Diego suggests that I flip over, and I do. And now my vulva is completely exposed. And while it's a safe space, it's... I feel very vulnerable, so I instinctively squeeze my eyes shut, and I hear Diego take a stool and pull it up to sit at my yoni, because it's his workspace now, and and, um, I I can just, like, sense that he's looking at it, and I start feeling very self-conscious, because I am a natural redhead. I am not entirely unshaved. And so I just begin like rapidly recalling all of these awful memories I have of like asshole people calling me a fire crotch. I think about, like, okay, I went to Jewish sleepaway camp and for some reason they made all the girls like shower together. So girls would literally like point at my bush and laugh at it. So. <laughs> Like, this is all I'm thinking about right now. It's like people pointing and laughing at my ugly vagina, and now here it is on display in front of Diego like a plate of food. But then Diego whispers, she's beautiful. (laughs) And, um, I mean, I just freeze because I'm like, do I respond to that? Like, like, how does one respond to that? And Diego asks, Becky, did you hear what I said? And I go, yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
So then I'd give Diego my consent to let him massage that area of my body. And he just gets like laser focused on my vulva area. And he's just like massaging very small areas like near and around my vaginal opening. And he is doing it with like such tight precision. It's like those people who make like teeny tiny doll furniture. (laughs) And then at one point, a UPS person comes up and drops a package off at his front door. And I'm just like, does this guy have any idea like what is going on in here right now? Um, at one point, I do, I do feel some pain and my muscles spasm. So I let Diego maneuver his thumb over to my clitoris. And I start feeling pleasure again. And I feel so much pleasure that I have an orgasm. And it wasn't like the best orgasm, but it was definitely the weirdest. (laughs) Um, And after it happened, like, my emotional state was like really nonchalant, like this very rational kind of like Jerry Seinfeld-esque voice in my head went like, oh, look at that, you're not frigid. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I wonder what time it is. (laughs) And then I started to panic because I realized that I had to leave because I had tickets with a friend to go see Dirty Dancing the Musical that night. So I tell Diego that I'm done, and he gives me some space to get dressed and collect myself, and when he comes back in, he asks how I'm doing. And I realize that I am just like flabbergasted right now. I, I can't believe that I came here. I can't believe that I came here. And um, he just tells me, you know, like, don't overthink this right now. Just let the emotions come and give yourself time to process them. So I PayPal Diego. (laughs) And I kind of stress out over, like, should I write thank you in the memo or not? Um, But I don't. and, And I give him a hug goodbye. And as I'm in my car, just frantically racing across town, the emotions do come, and I feel so ashamed of myself. I feel just so disgusting, and I'm so upset that my body is so broken that I just paid someone via friends and family to give me an orgasm, and I just burst into tears. So I do what I usually do to like quickly cheer myself up when I have a crying in my car situation and I turn on Pandora to the classic pop station because it always plays upbeat songs. But for some reason, the song that came on was Cats in the Cradle. (laughs) And I just start crying even more because I'm thinking like, oh my God, these two people started off as orgasms and what a fucking nightmare their lives turned into. So when I finally make it to Dirty Dancing the Musical, I feel like I have no choice but to tell my friend what I did because I'm covered in tears and like patchouli scented massage oil and like my hair is a mess from all the hair pulling I love so much. And um, uh, to my surprise, she was actually like really impressed that I went and was able to let go and have an orgasm 
And I just felt this sense of relief of, oh, what I did wasn't gross. It was actually like this really good first step for me in reconnecting with my sexuality. So, you know, in a weird way, Diego was kind of like a Patrick Swayze figure for me at that point in my life. And then he taught me that it was time to stop putting my yoni in a corner. <laughs> Thank you. What up, homies? Welcome to Cutalingus Class. Now, bitches ain't being satisfied, so check it. Quit fucking on that clitoris so damn hard. Bitches don't like that nonsense. That's like putting the tip of your penis in the vacuum. Y'all need to chill on the clitoris. Go around that business. That's like a button made of a million penis tops. Now, every bitch like her cunnilingus a little bit different. Some bitches like it in a circle. Some bitches like it up and down. Some bitches like it hard. Some bitches like it soft. Communicate with your bitches. Vaginas are like snowflakes. Snowflakes is different. Learn yo, bitch, it's snowflake. Ask your bitch what she wants, then do what she says. It was the winter of 2006 and I was in Miss Claret's fourth grade class. And what you need to understand for this story is that I was and still am a huge teacher's pet. I was the kind of kid who chose to attend my own parent-teacher conferences on the day I had off just so I could get the validation. Although I will say it was well-deserved. I was a good student and I worked hard. Anyway, because of this need for teachers to like me, I would show up early to Miss Claret's homeroom every day at 7.30 to help her with tasks before all the students came at 8. Mind you, she never asked me to do this, but I live within walking distance of the school and I would come in early and help her organize pencils or whatever. My school had this program where there was a free breakfast for everyone. Stuff like bagels and toast and orange juice, coffee, bananas, just to make sure everyone got to eat before class started, for teachers and for students. The main rule was that teachers were allowed to eat their breakfast wherever they wanted, but students couldn't bring food outside of the cafeteria. So one day I'm helping Miss Claret decorate a bulletin board before the other students came in and she asked if I would go down to the cafeteria and get her a plain bagel with cream cheese and a glass of juice. And of course, I jump at this opportunity to be helpful, so I run downstairs and toasted this little bagel and carefully applied the cream cheese all nice and wrapped it up in a little napkin and filled up a cup of juice and sort of just smugly told the lady that it was okay I was taking food out of the cafeteria because it was for a teacher. And I carried it upstairs and I gave it to Miss Claret. And so she started having me do this more often. And one morning I'm walking upstairs with her breakfast and a different teacher, my Spanish teacher, Senor Gomez, says hi to me in the hallway and asks why I'm carrying food in the classroom area. And I explain how I sometimes bring breakfast to Miss Claret. And she says, oh, that's nice. Would you want to bring me breakfast too? And I say, sure, what do you want? And she says, I would like a multigrain bagel with butter and coffee. So the next day I'm dropping off the multigrain bagel with coffee for Senora Gomez and the plain bagel with cream cheese and juice for Miss Claret and the woman who shared the office with Senora Gomez, a teacher I didn't have who taught science in fifth grade, asked if she could get on the roster too. And word starts spreading around the middle school that this little affection-starved brunette girl would deliver you breakfast from downstairs to your office before school started. 
And after four clients, I was having a little bit of trouble remembering all the orders. So after school, I went to a stationery store and used some of my allowance money to buy one of those legitimate order pads that waitresses and diners and stuff would use. And so I wrote down all the teacher's orders and kept it in my back pocket. And the roster kept growing and kept growing. And I was having trouble making multiple trips up and down the stairs because I was running late to class. So I borrowed this little red wagon toy my baby sister had, like one of those little wagons that you could pull. And I brought that to school and I loaded up all my orders onto it and I got special permission to take the elevator up to the middle school floor to go on my route. And this went on and kept growing for about a month until I had around 15 clients and all these little bagels and coffees and juices all piled up in my cart. And I became obsessed with this little business. And mind you, I wasn't being paid for any of this and I kept having to wake up earlier and earlier to get ready. But I was addicted to all of it. I was addicted to the feeling of being busy and in high demand, to the feeling of handing off all the orders and checking all the teachers' names off in my little notepad and to the butterflies I would get in my stomach every time they said thank you. And I was beginning to start thinking about my little business all day. It was distracting me from my schoolwork and I couldn't sleep at night. I was so excited to get up and do it all over again. And one day I'm in the cafeteria. I just gotten my 16th client, the eighth grade English teacher, Mr. Rosen, and I was having trouble fitting his order into my little wagon. So I'm sort of standing there like early in the morning, precariously balancing all these little coffee cups and juice cups and playing Tetris with the bagels. And I'm slowly wheeling this little red wagon down the middle school hallway. And I make one or two deliveries and I'm running late. It's like five minutes before the rush of students is gonna show up. And I don't know if I lose my balance or a wheel gets loose or what, but the entire your wagon piled high with these continental breakfasts just tips over and the bagels go everywhere cream cheese and butter side down the coffees and juices are splashing down the hallway and just created this gross enormous puddle everywhere and i'm just standing in the middle of all of it looking at this mess i've created realizing i've bitten off so much more than i could chew and i don't know if i should stand there and wait for someone to help me or if i should go get paper towels but risk thinking that i made this huge mess and i just abandon it and this whole time I'm just thinking about this rule that's been drilled into our heads that students cannot have food outside the cafeteria. And the students start walking in, the bell's gonna ring, some eighth grade girls are snickering at me and the boys are sloshing through the puddles in their winter boots and I'm just standing there looking totally pathetic. And a custodian is walking down the hall and notices me in front of my entire crumbled empire, the bagels and juice and coffee all around me. And he said, honey, what the hell are you doing? And I looked him right in the eyes and said, I have no frickin' idea. This is Risk. This is Pink Martini behind me now with a cover of Ravel's Bolero, which we have kind of fucked with in that last story. We took the proper bolero, the 15-minute long orchestral piece, and squeezed it into those four or five minutes there. We sped it up as it went along. That was kind of a collaborative effort between Jeff Barr, John LaSala, and myself on that one. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Let me see if you guys can hear what's going on round about my crotch right now. That is the sound of my little feline friend, Quincy, here, who has 
arrived at the decision that he likes me to hold him in my lap when I'm recording the podcast. And because he's so damn spoiled, he gets his way. I'm trying to balance out the equipment and my notes and the holding a cat. But the show must go on. Folks, the next Patreon bonus content that we're working on is a check-in between me and one of everyone's favorite risk storytellers, Amy Salloway, who is also one of our story studio instructors. So that's coming soon. And there's lots more bonus content at patreon.com slash risk. Your donations are very needed to help keep the show going. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode comes from one of, well, our latest, actually, our latest live stream show. Guys, one of the greatest technical challenges that we've faced in the show's history is in this past year, getting the storytellers to record themselves for the live streams. Oh my gosh, I cannot tell you how frustrating it is. I mean, we've had to deal with a lot of just things going wrong, just things going wrong. So, you know... I always err on the side of, okay, great, the audio is terrible, but you can make out what the person is saying, so we'll run it on the podcast anyway. So yeah, Dave Emanuel told this story on our last live stream, and people were so moved. And it was really interesting, the Q&A afterwards as well. We always have a Q&A with the storytellers at the end of the live streams, and it's always fascinating to see what else comes up out of the questions that the audience asks. But yes, uh, four stories were told at the last live stream and three of the four, the recording equipment that the uh, storytellers were using on their end failed. So what we've got is the recording that we got through Zoom. But you're about to hear how moving the story is. Nevertheless, here is Dave Emanuel with a story we call 
Roadside Low. Everyone, please welcome to the virtual stage, Dave Emanuel. Oh, thanks, everybody. Even when you have depression, like I do, there are moments when everything is just fine. When, in fact, you can't believe how good things are going. You're not worried about your job. You're not worried about your health or your family. You're not sad and feeling like you have a giant load on yourself. You're not weighted down. In fact, you feel really good. Maybe you're a little cocky. Like, you got this and you're not going to worry about it ever again. Sadness has gone, right? You got it. I was having one of those days and I was driving home out here in Madison. We have something called the Beltline, which is our one highway that goes through town. And it can get a little busy, not by New Yorker standards or Philly or standards or L.A. or anything like that. But for us, it can be 15 minutes of a slowdown. And we're in that, right? We're going about five miles an hour. I'm in the far right lane, but I don't care. I don't mind. I'm feeling good and we could be here all day. Five miles an hour, rush hour traffic for Madison. It'll last about 20 minutes, and then it'll be smooth as anything. And I know it'll be good. But right then, in the left shoulder, a car is going about 70 miles an hour next to a concrete wall. It's caught up to the left, and this person is in such a hurry. They need to get where they're going. They're going 70 when everybody else, bumper to bumper, is going five. I... I look at them and I just sort of sigh, maybe I shrug. And then I see that they hit the wall and they bounce back into a car and then bounce back into a wall and the smoke rises up and the horns start going. And I can hear people screaming, yelling, I'm not sure, it just sounds. But somehow I'm a little ahead of this accident, right? I'm in that right lane and everybody else gets stopped and I go into that perfect empty space ahead of the crash but I'm feeling pretty good and I don't want to feel bad. I want to help somebody. So I, I pull over to that left curb. I get out of my car. I turn and I start running towards the smoke, towards this car that I can see is mangled further down the road. And I yell at another car is pulled over, call 911. And right now I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling bad. I'm not feeling sad or happy. I'm just feeling that sense of urgency where you're not really thinking when you're not really feeling anything but just the adrenaline that pushes through you. And so I tell the person to call 911, and, and, and they do. Maybe they were already on it. And I get to the car. The front of the car, I can't really tell anything that's a sedan, is mangled and pushed in. But the window looks fine. And I get up, and I look into the driver's side. And I see a woman. This woman looks somewhere between 16 and 46, depending on how hard she's been living. She looks like this is not her day, and she was not feeling good at all. And she looks up at me, and I say, are you okay? She looks fine, but I can see in her eyes, even before she talks, something I recognize. There's this glossy, I don't care look. There's this look and face that makes me think that she was having a bad day before the accident. 
before she decided to drive 70 miles an hour in a five mile an hour slowdown. And she turns and she looks at me when I say, are you okay? And she says, fuck you. She's done. She's had it. Maybe she has been doing things that she should not be doing. Maybe she is just in that terrible, terrible place. I see her fooling around with the trying to move the gear shift, but it's not going anywhere. This car isn't moving. So I know what to do. I'm going to run back to the driver who is calling 911. I'm going to get there and I'm going to talk to whoever she is on the line. So I book it and I'm running fast as I can. Again, not sad, not happy, just full of action and knowing what to do. Like maybe I can help somebody. Maybe I can. I get to the car. I turn and I look back and the woman is no longer in her broken sedan. She's up on top of that concrete wall. She's going to climb over the wall and then run through the traffic on the other side, which is going about 70 miles an hour. And I see this and again, not thinking I do what a dad or a mom knows how to do. You know that way you can make your voice have as much bass as you possibly want? And you can project it like a power blast, like a superpower at somebody, at a kid at 50 paces. You can say, no, stop, get down, as loud as you can. And that's what I did. And that's what she did. She turned around. She climbed down from the concrete barrier and she waited for me as I ran as fast as I could. But now I'm feeling something. I'm not feeling the adrenaline. There's a woman who was going 70 miles an hour in a five-mile slowdown who said, fuck you, to the man who wanted to help her. And he was then going to climb in the traffic. I know this woman. I am this woman. I've had those days when I want to go 70 miles an hour. I've had those days when if you ask me, can I help you? I want you to fuck off because you got no clue what I'm going through. I've had those days when I would climb into traffic right away. Just give me a provocation. Been there. I fucking live there sometimes. So I get to her and she's down. I said, can I give you a hug? Because right then I was kind of feeling like this woman. I, I knew her and I kind of wanted a hug. It wasn't even really for her. So I wasn't feeling high and cocky anymore. I was back in it. And she says, yes, please. So she puts her arm around me and I put my arm around her. And we're holding there. And I say, what's your name? And she says, Melanie. And I say, it's going to be okay, Melanie. We're going to be okay. And she says, you don't understand. As much as I'd like to think I do, I don't. I know my pain, not hers. She says, you don't understand. I want to die. And I say, I understand. I want to die too. But we're just going to stand here and we're going to wait. I think I said the wrong thing. I think I shouldn't have said wait. 
because she doesn't want to wait. And she runs into traffic, my side. But I'm pretty big, and she's small. And I just got her. And I swear, her feet go off the ground, and I'm holding Melanie. And I'm saying, Melanie, no, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And I get her back onto the ground, and I'm trying to say, how tight can I hold this woman without hurting her? How do I do this? So I'm doing this thing where I release my grip until she struggles, and then I tighten, but not too much. And that's when the first police officer comes. And meanwhile, traffic is coming by and, and some people are mad and they're yelling at us because maybe they saw us earlier and they're upset and they're getting by and we're getting some fingers and some fuck yous from them. But the police officer comes up and he's just waltzing up and kind of smiling because we're two white people on the side of a road and we're not hitting any of his triggers. But white privilege, it can only go so far. And she says, fuck you, pig, you fucking pig. And I think, or I say, I don't know. No, Melanie, that's not what we do. We'll be fine. Just wait here. And that police officer turns around and says, I'll be right back. And he leaves. And I know what I'll be right back means. It means he's coming back with reinforcements. But I'm holding on to Melanie, and she wants the traffic. She wants to be in the middle of the road, and I'm struggling with her because she knows he's coming back with traffic, and Melanie, as I can tell right now, knows more about police than I do. But I struggle, and we fight the side of that road, and we hug, and we fight, and we're mad at each other, kind of like also together, and she's crying into me, and I am crying into her now and the cars are coming back and some of them are yelling at us and i don't know how long we're there the side of the road the police officer's gone and i'm just thinking i'm hurt i'm sad i'm scared i want to die but god damn it not right now not right now right now melody and i are gonna be fine and i don't know how long it takes but four more police officers come and they come up, and they don't have that non-triggered face anymore. They're ready. And they tell me, let go. When they get there, and they have us surrounded. And I don't want to let go, because I don't know what happens next. I don't know if I release her. What do they do? What does she do? What do I do? But I don't know how to say no, and I let go. And she runs, and they take her down. Not down, like up, like hold her back, but down, face into the pavement, arm behind her back. And not all police are the same, and I know that. And one of them is gently touching her arm and trying to tell her things are going to be okay. But one of them is doing mean things to her wrist behind her back. And the other one has side of her face, and he's pushing it into the concrete. They're bringing over handcuffs. And then I'm standing there, and I say, Melanie, it's going to be okay. And she says, you're a liar. And I'm a liar. Melanie's right. I held her there on the side of the road knowing the police were coming. I told her everything was going to be fine, and I don't know if things are going to be fine for Melanie. I don't know if things are going to be fine for me. 
I like to think I knew the pain she was going through, but I have no goddamn idea. I'm lying to myself that I know what's going on. And they get her on a stretcher and that she's facing up and they have her, I don't know if her arms, I can't remember, they're locked to the side. I don't know, but she can't move. And I just want to see her face. And she sees mine, but she's not friends with me anymore. She doesn't say anything, but she looks at me like I'm a liar and I don't know. And I hurt her too. And they take her away. And I'm standing there. I'm on the side of the road. The traffic gets cleared up. I'm next to a broken car and I was having a good day. And I don't have a whole lot of good days. And she's gone. And I want her back. I want to hold her. And I want to tell her everything is going to be okay. And I want to believe it. But she's gone. And I miss her. I don't know what happened. And I'm alone. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Lightning Seeds behind me now, and we just heard from Dave Emanuel. Hey, that was recorded at a Risk live stream. These live streams are still so moving and so wonderful, a way for us all to connect at a time when it's so confusing as to how to stay connected. <laughs> and the next one, as I said before, the next one is on Friday. March 12th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, if you want to get a personalized video greeting from me for a friend or a loved one, just go to cameo.com slash thekevinallison. And if you'd like to hire me for storytelling training, I'm at kevinallison.com. I have been loving some of these one-on-one -on -one sessions that I'm doing with people. And in fact, some of them are not even really storytelling workshopping. Some of them are just people who just want to chat 
folks who just want to brainstorm with me on where they're at with their creative life or their love life or whatever it might be. And my goodness, some of those sessions have been so profound and moving for me. And if you'd like to talk with other fans about the stories you hear on the show, you can join the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. You have to answer a couple of questions to prove you're not a robot or something. Or you can go to our subreddit at Risk Podcast. And you can follow us on our socials at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. If love's the truth, then look no lies and let me swim around your eyes. I found a place I'll never leave. Shut my mouth and just believe love is the truth I realize. Not a stream of pretty lies. To use as love. See if you guys can hear what's going on round about my crotch right now.